to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 150 years after the Civil War, America has not quite gotten over the issues that started it. Structural racism, the authority of the federal government, all still hot issues, flags, symbols, monuments. The war remains a lightning rod for emotion for many people. And for those who study the war, one place where that is especially true, the conditions of prisons. Tonight, we'll talk about Point Lookout Prison with Bradley M. Gottfried, author of Hell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the annex of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I'm not in the main headquarters there at... Uh, at the Brewster Building. I'm home on Oxford Road, where all is quiet, where uh, our two poodles have long since departed for doggy heaven. Our cat uh, went wherever cats go uh, earlier this year. And uh, my wife has gone to Chicago to visit our younger daughter. 
Uh, older daughters off in Raleigh living her life. So home alone tonight. No animals or people here at uh, Civil War Talk Radio Annex. So I'm speaking only for myself, not for the no one else in the house. And likewise, our guest will speak only for himself, as we always do on the show. <clears throat> it's the last uh, show of April 2019. It is the beautiful time of year in eastern North Carolina when the weather is temperate. There are two, sometimes three days when it is no longer rainy and unpleasant and not yet muggy and unpleasant, uh, when it's just simply pleasant. There's, there's pollen, vast quantities of yellow pollen, but but beyond that, it's really nice. Yesterday was the last day of classes for the spring semester, and in the afternoon, leaving my office at uh, 6 o'clock, it was... The students were having the annual Barefoot on the Mall event where they have uh, outdoor concerts. Somebody named T-Pain was performing for them. I have no idea who or what that means. I got one of the electric bicycles, the Lime bikes that you can rent anywhere on campus, and got one of those and rode over to the baseball stadium and watched the team play against UNC Wilmington. A game which lasted over four hours. I'm sorry to say it just kept going on and on. But quite exciting and entertaining. And ECU won. What a day. The weather's nice. Students are out on the mall. Teams winning baseball games. Uh, Sometimes it's really worthwhile to be here at ECU. uh, And I'm sure at other places like it around the country. And speaking of uh, ECU and its history department, a quick shout out to my colleague, uh, Professor Angela Thompson. I just came in the door a few minutes ago from her retirement reception. This is her last semester. She teaches a the capstone course for history majors where they present their, their semester-long research projects. And like other professors, I attend that most years to hear what the students have done. And next year, I will be teaching it. So uh, I have to follow in her footsteps. And I have to say, some of the presentations I heard this year were just uh, remarkably good and, and were about topics that ought to be on this show someday. Others, not so much, but can't win them all. You can uh, find out, however, what all of them are going to be by going to impedimentsofwar.org and find out who's going to be on the show next. We have good shows coming up in May of 2019. Uh, starting next Wednesday, Amy Morell Taylor will be here to talk about slave refugee camps in the Civil War. Her book, Embattled Freedom, this past week won the uh, Tom Watson Brown Award of the Society of Civil War Historians is the premier prize for a Civil War book. So uh, having anticipated that by inviting her to be on the show next week, uh, we, we will be among the first to hear her thoughts on it uh, from the position of a uh, Tom Watson Brown Award winner. We'll follow that up the following week with Joan Cashin, her book, War Stuff. She has two books out. Another one is called War Matters, and they're both uh, connected. I think one's an edited volume and one is her own writing. We'll find out what they are about uh, when we talk to her on May 8th. And then Gary Gallagher, known to you all, will be here on the 15th with his book of photographs of interesting places in the Civil War and comments by other historians about those places. All those folks, uh, Gary and Amy and uh, I'm not sure if Joan Cash will be there this year, but two out of three will be at the Civil War Institute 
in Gettysburg. If you have not yet signed up, contact Gettysburg College, www.gettysburg.edu slash CWI. That's the Civil War Institute. Find out about it. Go join up. Uh, I'll be there. should be lots of uh, stimulating discussion and meeting interesting people from around the country. And you get a discount for being a Civil War talk radio listener. Just tell them that on the phone. They will believe you, and they will... They will recognize you for that. Uh, Also, the Civil War Roundtable Congress coming up in September 2019. Not too early to start planning on that. If you belong to a Civil War Roundtable or if you want to start one where you are or if you just uh, remember them from the old days and wonder why they're not as big anymore in some places. Well, some of them are as big. Some are bigger. Uh, This is a place where Civil War Roundtable folks meet to share best practices and learn Things like uh, recruitment and retention, effective governance, uh, preservation, uh, proven fundraising, social media marketing, all kinds of things you can do, uh, learn about. That'll be in St. Louis, Missouri, September 20 through the 22nd. And uh, just look for the Civil War Roundtable Congress online and you'll find out about that. And if you're in the area here in North Carolina, I'll be speaking to the Raleigh Civil War Roundtable on May 13th, talking about... Uh, the Army of the Ohio. So uh, come and and join for that if you get a chance. Lots going on. Uh, But let's talk to our guest tonight. Uh, Tonight we bring back to the show uh, Bradley M. Gottfried. Uh, Brad was with us last in the year 2007 as we talked about his book then, The Maps of Gettysburg. Tonight we're talking about the prisoner of war camp, the uh, at Point Lookout, Maryland, also the site of the Hammond General Hospital. It's not as well known as Gettysburg. We'll find out what went on there and, and why. Uh, well, we'll let him tell us about it. Uh, Brad, are you there? I am here, Jerry, and I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity. Well, well, welcome back to the show. It's been uh, 12 years, shockingly. It doesn't wow. seem like time has gone by so much. Um, yes. When we last talked, you were the president, I believe, of the uh, College of Southern Maryland, and mm-hmm. still found time to write books about Gettysburg, which I, I thought was just astonishing. Uh, are, are you still uh, still leading college? Or have you reached the, the golden retirement uh, moment yet? I am very happy to say that I'm gainfully unemployed. I have uh. retired in 2017. And unlike many retirees who feel compelled to get a part-time job, um, I am fully retired. I, I do some work on the side. I'm a licensed Gettysburg Town Guide, so I lead foot tours around the, the town of Gettysburg. Uh, but for the most part, um, it's a matter of continuing my, my research, writing more map books. Since uh, the maps of Gettysburg, I've written, I believe, five more uh, get map studies, and I'm trying, as you may recall, although may not have mentioned it at the time, to mm. map every uh, campaign in the Eastern th- Theater of the Civil War. Well, that was a, a noble goal. So let, let me start by calling you out on this current book, uh, Hell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. Uh, the first thing I had to do was go to Google, where is Point Lookout? Because you don't have a map in there. Ah, that's that, a very good point. 
<laughs> the uh, the book actually is mainly for the the general reader, thinking mm-hmm. uh, it was primarily for individuals who live around Maryland, Southern Maryland. Although the whole topic area is of interest, I think to anyone who um, really follows the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But um, good point. Very good point. Well, it, it did strike me. It seems like it's it's a slender volume, the kind of thing that if you're at a, a museum shop, it's just the right size to take home. It's not like a major right. investment, but it gives you more detail than you can get in a quick museum visit. Uh, and for a person who's already in the museum store, well, now you know where the place is. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Indeed. Uh, so, so tell, well, for those listening, where is Point Lookout? Point Lookout is at the very bottom of St. Mary's County. St. Mary's County is in Southern Maryland, which is between, if, if you can visualize, uh, the point where the Potomac River is to the west and the Chesapeake Bay is to the south and to the east. And it is a perfect location to locate a prisoner of war camp because it is so close to the battlefields of Virginia. So, so that peninsula hanging down there is is across the Potomac from Virginia. It's not can't be captured by Lee's army on foot, but it's it's just a short boat ride away. That that makes That's sense. Correct, and it really started off as you indicated with a with a um, Civil War uh, hospital. In fact, it was one of the largest Civil War hospitals uh, at that time, and. Um, because it was so close to the battlefields, it was a matter of putting these unfortunates onto a boat, taking them across the Potomac River, uh, unloading them at a wharf, and then, um, you know, housing them at the, this um, this hospital, Hammond General Hospital. And then, when there was a need for additional prison facilities, it was a natural. They already had many of the infrastructure that they would need in terms of warehouses, a wharf, um, medical facilities, et cetera. It was a natural to to, uh, put it right there in Southern Maryland. Um, And and also just obviously the proximity to the the battlefields. Well, uh, on the cover, there is a a wonderful illustration, a bird's eye view of the hospital, which reminds me of the... the, uh, the way it's laid out, the, the panopticon uh, prison concept of the early 19th century where you would have all all the the, uh, the hallways in a prison would all be in, in a, a circular form, like, like spokes yeah. of a wheel. So one guard could sit in the center and look down every hallway at the same time, save money on uh, wardens that way, I guess. But this hospital building is designed that way. It's got, uh, it looks like a dozen or more wings all... Uh, radiating out from a central spoke. What, what a curious uh, hospital layout. It was uh, revolutionary at the time. And when we think about our current hospitals, which is simply a monolith of a building, as you mentioned, Jerry, it is a, mm-hmm. uh, a series of these very long wings that are all sur- uh, connected by a concentric ring at the inner circle. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a larger wing that is for the physicians, for their offices, for their quarters, And it made it easy for um, medical personnel to move from one wing to another. The thinking was that it would, um, because of this, it it would allow additional fresh air to enter the hospital, and perhaps that would help in the healing process. So unlike a a large one-structure building, it was many buildings 
Um, it may not have been the most efficient, but it certainly was revolutionary for the time. Well, it reflects how they were just struggling, <clears throat> excuse me, just struggling toward recognizing uh, germ theory and, and mm-hmm. you know, identifying things were contagious and that, that sunlight was, you know, had a disinfectant effect, that fresh air was good for patients. They're, they're trying to provide that here, obviously, even if they don't yes. quite know why it's a good thing. Right, right. So the, uh, the hospital is built. Uh, was that, how early in the war was the hospital built? That was built in 1862, actually the summer of 1862, and they put it up very, very quickly. The, the, the whole area of Southern Maryland is interesting. That point was a vacation um, facility. In other words, um, an entrepreneur had purchased the, the land, had put up cottages because of its, um, its um, value as a what he considered to be a vacation resort, especially during the, the dreadful times during the summer. If you reside in, in Washington, D.C., where it's mm. dreadfully hot, it's very humid, um, people could retreat. They could come down via boat to southern Maryland and enjoy the, um, the, the sea breezes and the cooler weather, etc. So it was fairly well known that this was a place that um, had pretty good weather and it might be a good place to, to locate a hospital. So it wasn't out of the blue that they decided to put it here. Um, I think many of the individuals, the decision makers, um, knew of it and, um, you know, and, and therefore it, it came to be for that reason. Well, the, the pleasant summer breezes surely would mean this would also be a reasonable place for a prisoner of war camp, why you wouldn't even need to build any substantial shelter for them, one might think. Uh, But if that's true or not, we're going to find out when we come back from a short break. Uh, I'm talking tonight with Brad Gottfried, co-author, with Linda I. Gottfried, I should note, uh, of the book Hell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bradley M. Gottfried, co-author, along with Linda I. Gottfried, of Hell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. We established in our first section, Point Lookout is a what it would seemingly be a scenic and healthful point of land on the peninsula between Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River, uh, on the Maryland side across from Virginia, near the battlefront, but protected by the Union Navy, so uh, a hospital could be located there. But not too long after the hospital is there, the, the decision is made to begin lo- locating Confederate prisoners there as well. Uh, how does that come about? It all relates to the death of the cartel. There was, um, at the beginning of the war, there was not a formal way that prisoners could be exchanged. And as time went on, there was enough of an uproar. Well, long story, but uh, Lincoln had a hesitancy, and certainly Secretary of War Stanton, um, to enter into negotiations with the South about the formation of a um, exchange process. Um, because of a variety of factors, the decision was made to um, to form this cartel. It was the Wool slash Hill Cartel. It followed um, basically what was established during the War of 1812 with the British in terms of how prisoners of war would be treated, how they would be exchanged, and that would uh, continue on until basically the summer of 1863, about May of 1863 when it was um, basically discontinued by the action of Lincoln and Stanton for a variety of reasons. At that point, prisoner of war camps uh, became less of holding uh, places until the exchange could occur uh, and became holding pens. They became permanent uh, facilities for prisoners of war. At that point, you needed to have additional facilities in both the North and the South, especially after Gettysburg. And so you're going to see that uh, this prisoner of war camp is going to be established in July of 1863. Within literally weeks, it's going to go from a handful, maybe 130 prisoners, um, to almost 8,000 within a month. And that number is going to continue to grow. It's going to wax and wane throughout the war. 
but one of the distinctions of Point Lookout is of all the northern prisoner of war camps housing Confederate prisoners, this was the largest. It housed um, at any given, well, overall about 52,000 men. Uh, it got up to 20,000 men toward the, uh, the end of the Civil War. So, um, so to answer your question succinctly, um, just needed to have additional resources, different places, additional places to house these Confederate prisoners. And Point Lookout was a perfect uh, selection. Now, so I, I was surprised to read this is the largest of the Union mm-hmm. prison camps. Is that right? Yes, it was the largest. So it, I can see where it would make sense if you're uh, making decisions within the War Department. If you send prisoners up to Camp Douglas uh, in Chicago or uh, uh, camps in Lake Erie off of Cleveland or Elmira in New York, then on the one hand, they're safe from escape. They're a long, long way from home. But it's cold up there and you've got to uh, shelter them and, and supply fuel and clothing. Uh, to avoid them dying wholesale, which, which clearly is not something anybody wants to do. So Maryland seems like a good solution. Uh, you don't even need to build buildings for them. Uh, this this was the only uh, the only such prison camp in the North that didn't actually have buildings. Where did the people live? Well, and that is the distinction. Uh, it is the only prisoner of war camp in the North that did not have wooden barracks. So all of the prisoners lived in a variety of different kinds of tents. Whatever was available came to uh, Point Lookout. Usually those that were unfit for northern armies would be sent to Point Lookout. So if you were to walk into the prisoner of war camp, you would see a hodgepodge of different kinds of tents. Uh, There were never enough tents, not only the supply, but also just the... We're talking about a pen of 20 acres holding as many as 20,000 men, so there just was not enough space. And in each tent, a Sibley tent, which might normally hold 12, might have 18 or 19 prisoners. Um, the, 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 the error was that Southern Maryland was not as balmy as the, as the um, Union authorities believed. In the winter, it gets pretty cold. It goes under freezing regularly. It floods regularly, and the winds coming off of the Potomac and the um, Chesapeake Bay are can be very, very dramatic. So I, I was saying in the introduction what a nice time of year it is here in, in eastern North Carolina. If I had to camp out a couple of days, uh, I would do it in, in late April, early May, and it wouldn't yeah. be too bad. But... Uh, if you've spent the summer, the whole summer down here, it's absurdly humid and hot, and uh, the winter gets pretty unpleasant too. So you're suggesting it's the same thing uh, uh, there, that it's just too um, uh, comfortable place to uh, uh, to live. Yeah, actually, one of the good things about it in the summer that you didn't find in most of the other camps was that because it was on the Chesapeake Bay. They would open the gates to the Chesapeake, and these men could go out under guard. They could swim, they could fish, they could um, wash themselves, they could sunbathe. That was something that you didn't find elsewhere for the most part. So that was a real plus, especially when they were not receiving the, ra- the, the amount of rations that they needed to really survive. 
but the winters counterbalance that. Uh, when you look at the inadequacy of clothing, when you look at the inadequacy of firewood, when you look at the inadequacy of shelter, it, it was extreme. Um, and it's kind of surprising that more men did not perish because of the, uh, the elements and the exposure. Uh, food is something that you discuss in some detail in the book. And uh, uh, when we think of Civil War prisons, I'm sure everybody's mind flashes to the horrifying photographs of uh, starvation victims from Andersonville in Georgia. Uh, what, what was the food like at, at Camp Lookout? Well, if you were there in the fall of 1863 when the camp just opened, you would say, hey, this is pretty good. There was coffee, there was soup, there was meat, there was bread. What they tried to do was provide the same kind of rations that you would find um, essentially uh, in the Union Army. But as time went on and as stories of Anderson and other um, areas of, of what the North believed to be atrocities, unnecessary atrocities and mistreatment of um, Northern prisoners, the way that they tried to convince the South of the error of their ways was to retaliate against the prisoners in not only Point Lookout but other camps as well. And the best way to do it was to reduce the food ration. And so all through 1864, you see a, a, uh, an incremental reduction in the amount of food that is actually being provided to the men. So finally... Um, it settles on essentially the equivalent of a, a small hamburger. Think of like a, a, a fast food hamburger and a cup of soup uh, for the day. So it's enough to keep these men alive, but uh, certainly they weren't thriving under those conditions. And again, it was not uh, intentional. Well, some might say it was intentional mistreatment, but they were death. Uh, Lincoln and Stanton were desperate to try to get the South to provide more resources to the men at, at Andersonville and other, you know, Salisbury, other Confederate prisoner of war camps. And this is the way they did it, through, uh, through food. It's, I mean, it's a horrifying thing that, that to retaliate against these people who are now helpless in camp uh, and, and to treat them in this way. At the same time, I suppose it's understandable if if the nation's enemies today were holding prisoners in, in dire conditions, I'm sure a lot of Americans would say, well, let's hold their prisoners in dire conditions. We'll, we'll show them. Uh, not With not any expectation the other side's going to give way and, and suddenly become good-hearted, but just an eye for an eye. If you're going to do this to us, we're going to do it to you. And, uh, well, you know, it's interesting, Jerry, you mentioned that because it, you raise a very good point. Um, there are two other books on Point Lookout. They're mm -hmm. much larger. They have much more detail. Some include all of the names of the prisoners of war, etc. But both of them are very much pro-South. It is, mm -hmm. oh, how terrible it was, the atrocities. They were intentional. But neither of these books really went into the rest of the story. You know, I'm not going to try to justify one side or the other, mm -hmm. but it's understandable why Lincoln and Stanton would have resorted to these measures. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in Annapolis as, as Secretary of War Stanton was, and you see these human skeletons coming off of the wharf at at point at um, Annapolis, mm -hmm. um, men who are you know barely alive. 
you say, what can we do to change things? And this is with the understanding, you know, because this is the biggest question that I get when I give this presentation. You've heard it. Mm -hmm. Many of people have heard it. The South couldn't feed their own population, let alone the prisoners of war, you know, who happened to be at Andersonville. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are other books, other research that are showing that um, maybe the resources were there, but were not being deployed. The, the logistics were issued. Um, were, were at issue rather than the actual amount of, of resources that were available, especially in the Deep South. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, you know, Grant discovers that in Mississippi and Sherman and Georgia, that there's, there's plenty of food. Yeah. You just, it, it's yes. back down on the farm, though, and they can't get it to, to their own soldiers or uh, easily to the prisoner of war camps. Uh, so uh, one imagines if there were prioritization of making that happen, it might have happened. But the, you bring up an interesting point that this is still a very controversial topic, and you will find partisans who will argue that Andersonville was unavoidable, but Elmira was an atrocity, or vice versa, that, that Andersonville was the true atrocity, and, and the Union was simply retaliating uh, uh, to, you know, an eye for an eye. You, you come out right at the uh, you're very clear in the book that, that you're not didn't come into this trying to take one side or the other but at the end you do suggest that, that uh, you think the North could have done better administering this camp yeah I think so I think so um, you know I understand what the situation was but the most damning um, issues come from the mouths and from the pens of these uh, high officials when they say, for instance, um, we won't, uh, don't go out and buy blankets. Uh, we have all these inferior blankets that can't be used for our own troops because they've got holes in them or they're loaded with seawater or, um, or, or tents that are deteriorating. Um, you know, it, it's, they could have done better in that regard. Um, the food was a, a different issue. I think that was more immediate. I think they could have said to the, the South, look what we're doing. You know, you need to do a better job. But what happened was in both cases, those, those unfortunates who were, happened to be prisoners of war became mm -hmm. pawns. And, yes. and both sides are equally guilty in how they treated the, um, you know, the, the, the captives under their care. And as I've said in my presentations and with my wife, Linda, um, they were unwelcome guests. You know, they, they, they mm -hmm. really don't want to do, they really don't want them. They don't want to spend a lot of time and money on them, but they definitely don't want to kill them. So mm -hmm. is there sort of like a middle ground that they might be able to pursue? One of the things, and I do say this also in the book, um, is that... The prisoner of war camps after the war became a source of propaganda. Mm -hmm. And the stories that would emanate from former prisoners became more horrendous and worse and worse as time went on. And to the point where it was, um, it stretched the imagination. And so in this book, we tried very hard not to use any post-war uh, recollections. Mm -hmm. um, which may have been colored through through the, the prism of time. So it was mainly diaries and letters, and they're bad enough. I mean, yeah. good point. You know, a, a good point to your question, Jerry, is uh, would 
um, you know, they're intense, mm-hmm. and it gets cold, and wood is only going to be delivered to these men between November and February. Well, it gets very cold in um, October, and certainly in March, and when they do deliver wood, it's one cord for 1,000 men. And if you do the math, that comes to one piece of firewood per man every other day. Now, you know, if you think about seven guys in a tent and they've got seven pieces of wood to last them for two days, it's tough. Now, Mm -hmm. could the North have provided more? Yes, of course they could have. Um, And that had really nothing to do with, with retaliation or anything else. This was simply, I won't say it was comfort, it maybe it's a little bit deeper than comfort, but they could have provided more than than that. It's an interesting uh, concept. The, the and what struck me as I was reading this was was to go the other way. Uh, we're coming to a break, so let me just lay this out for you to think about, and then we'll come back with it. Uh, what if the North had responded to stories of of Andersonville and and the the incredibly difficult conditions soldiers were subject to, if they'd gone the other way, if the pendulum had swung the other way, if they'd said, come to a point lookout and you will get three squares a day, lots of firewood, a new blanket, new clothes, you'll be, if you're in Lee's army shivering and starving now, we will treat you like a king once you surrender. Uh, and, and, and make it so that people... Uh, instead of dreading surrender, would would look forward to it. Uh, I, I don't. I've never seen that idea proposed in, in any. Not researched it, but never seen that in Civil War writing. I wonder if that's something you'd ever come across. We're going to hold there. Let you think about that. Come right back and talk more with tonight's guest, Brad Gottfried, co-author of Hell Comes to Southern Maryland: The Story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bradley M. Gottfried. He's co-author, along with Linda I. Gottfried, of Hell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital. It is a slender volume, looking at it, 133 pages, uh, telling a story that not everyone is, is familiar with about this uh, originally a hospital, military hospital, later a prison camp, later the largest uh, prison camp uh, in the North, and one that was certainly well-known during the war, but uh, uh, but not, not a great deal has been written about it. Uh, so, uh, Brad, what about this uh, uh, thought that what if the the federal forces had, instead of retaliating and cutting the rations of Confederate prisoners, had multiplied them? Right. Um, well, a couple things. One, uh, Lincoln and Stanton really did want to get rid of um, many of these prisoner, prisoners of war. And tried a couple of ways to do that, and one way was to actually recruit many of these men or attempt to recruit many of these men into the U.S. service, where they would be given uniforms, guns. Um, These were called the galvanized Yankees, Mm -hmm. Um, and they actually formed the first U.S. volunteer infantry and a second regiment as well. But it was interesting how few men took advantage of this. There was also an opportunity where these men could have um, provided a, um, a uh, oath of allegiance and uh, essentially um, guaranteed that they would never raise up their, um, their arms against the Union. And again, very few of these men took advantage of this as well. So many of these men were, they were in it for the long haul. And um, this is not to answer your question directly, but once they Mm -hmm. were captured, even though the conditions were horrendous, they were not going to, um, they were not going to give up so quickly. And many of them, it was death or or sickness rather than uh, capitulating. Well, that that gets us to the $64 question of uh, death at uh, Point Lookout. The you can certainly get in arguments with people about statistics of uh, which camps were the most deadly, what where the, was the mortality rate the highest. Uh, what are some ballpark statistics for the survival rate at this camp? Well, it, 
that, that's a good question because it's a controversial issue mm-hmm. that we really won't ever know. If you look at the monument, if you look at the, the official records, uh, they state that just under 3,000 men perished at Point Lookout. That's over out of the 51,000. That's about a 5.6% mortality rates. If you look at the names on the monument at Point Lookout, um, there's about 3,400, and that would be a 6.4% mortality rate. Um, one of the authors, Richard Tribby, uh, did analysis, and I think it's fairly accurate. Um, he found three, about 30, just over 3,700 um, de- uh, deaths there, and that would be 7.1%. And then you get the, the descendant group that said over 14,000 men perished at Point Lookout. I think that's a little extreme. But probably, um, I'd say probably between 6 and 7% was the number of men that, that actually died. But it's beyond that because the deprivation of food, the, the severe cold, uh, I don't think, even though men may have walked out of that prisoner of war camp, and not just Point Lookout, but any prisoner of war camp, mm-hmm. uh, they're never the same emotionally and certainly never the same uh, physically all kinds of physical ailments uh, would follow them through the rest of their lives. The, uh, that's an interesting point that they're not the same. They're changed, as you say, mentally. The ordeal of just being in prison is, uh, is something you talk about. That, that, uh, what, what do you do all day when, when, you, mm-hmm. what, when you're there? To, how do the prisoners cope? Well, that's the thing. You know, if, if you break the law and you're put into prison, you mm-hmm. have a, a sentence. You know how long you're going to serve. Here, it was the uncertainty. They didn't know whether it was going to be a year or 10 years that they were going to be incarcerated. They didn't know whether they were going to live or die. You know, someone who goes to a federal pre- uh, penitentiary now, they know they're not going to be mistreated. They're going to get their three meals. They're going to get exercise, etc. These men had the stress of not knowing what was going to happen to them. But this was a group where all day, imagine all day after, you know, you, you, have, you have roll call, you have breakfast, you know, which is basically just um, a little piece of bread and, and, um, or a cracker and a little mm-hmm. piece of meat. You've got the rest of the day with nothing to do. And some might say, well, that's great. But just the boredom and what happens to people when they're bored, oftentimes the vices will begin, you know, gambling mm-hmm. uh, will occur, thievery, et cetera. But good things happened. Uh, they opened a school, and over a 1,000 men who were illiterate became, learned how to read. There were church services. There were, um, they would have all kinds of uh, plays and debates and... Uh, as I mentioned, they would go out to the beaches, but for the most part, you know, they opened a library, but there was never enough books. They, were, they would go to the library, and there would be no books on the shelves. Uh, and these were books that the prisoners had, had brought in with them, but mm-hmm. they, they were just desperate for things to do, and having just boredom will grate on you after a while. So one of the obvious things uh, prisoners try to do, military prisoners try to do, uh, given they have nothing else to do and they they haven't committed a crime, they don't feel morally bound to stay there, uh, is to escape. Did did anybody escape from Point Lookout? Um, 
probably about 50 men may have escaped. At least that's what the records say. Mm-hmm. Um, as the war went on, as um, the, uh, the the men became a little, the guards became a little bit more proficient. The defenses became a little bit stronger. The numbers actually declined. Uh, but the, yeah, they they would try to uh, escape. But when you think about out of the 51,000 men incarcerated there, maybe only 50 actually escaped. That's that tells you something, you know. And again, it's on the penin- at the bottom of the peninsula. Right. It's guarded, as you mentioned, by the P- Potomac Flotilla. And even if you're a good swimmer, to swim from the Maryland shore to the Virginia shore, which is over well over a mile, most men couldn't do it. And I suspect uh, many of those 50 who, who were unaccounted for may have perished during the, the attempt. The, I, I can see that. I, I recall as a... When I was in high school, trying to swim a quarter mile in Lake St. Clair from one point to another, and and uh, getting a, a leg cramp, and thinking, "Wow, yeah. you know, I, I could die here." Um, and you were the, probably well fed. Imagine they're on the verge. Yeah, of, I was. I, I was extremely well fed. Yes, uh, I mean, and, and in their case, they were not receiving the kind of nutrients to to give them that ability to have sustained exercise. Now, they're, of course, being guarded. Uh, You mentioned there are a number of regiments that rotate in and out, Union regiments. I thought one of the interesting factors is that at some points, especially before uh, uh, African-American soldiers were were welcomed in combat, you had USCT regiments uh, guarding the troops there. And what the uh, uh, revolution that must have been an unwelcome one in the minds of white Southerners accustomed to racial supremacy to uh, to find the bottom rail on top. It, it was indeed. Uh, they really had problems uh, philosophically with this, with, with the um, African-Americans having uh, rifles um, guarding them. Um, they, they had a lot of problems with it. They didn't have problems with the white men, the white um, soldiers, and many of them, like the 4th Rhode Island or the 5th New Hampshire, these were combat veterans who they had met on battlefields. The relations between the two groups was much more positive. I think there was a mutual respect. Um, but, you know, on the, on the other side, African Americans, many of them former slaves, they were mm-hmm. not happy um, with, the, with these Southern soldiers, and there were many instances where uh, a Southern, uh, uh, an African American soldier would shoot a white prisoner. Uh, sometimes shoot right into a uh, into a tent, and um, you know the, the animosity uh, continued to grow throughout the um, their stay during at, at Point Lookout. Well, you have some illustrations taken from it says the John Jacob Omenhauser sketchbook in the Maryland yes. Manuscripts Collection, uh, one of a, a black soldier on the fence warning a, a prisoner to move away from the deadline, which uh, everybody knows you cross the deadline, they can shoot at you. And he's saying, you know, get away from that fence, white man, or I'll make old Abe's gun smoke at you. I can hardly hold the ball back now. Bottom rail's on top. Right. Uh, and that was a problem because sometimes they would, and I'm putting in quotation marks, forget to uh, issue that order before they mm-hmm. fired. So there, there, there are a few escapes. Um, 
I, I don't want to let us get away without asking what happens after the war. Uh, the the war ends. Does everybody yes. everybody just go home in April 1865? Well, yeah, that's so odd, Jerry. I have to tell you that. And in fact, I don't have it in the book, unfortunately. But <laughs> during Lee's retreat in early April 1865, the war is on its last legs. They're capturing mm-hmm. many Confederate prisoners at Sailor's Creek and other other places along the retreat. Mm-hmm. The Union soldiers don't hold these men. They actually send them to Point Lookout. And Mm -hmm. the war is going to be over, essentially, the end of April. They're going to be there uh, through May, through June, and into July before they're actually released. And, you know, part of it was, you know, just the logistics. How do we get these men back to their homes? It wasn't that they wanted to hold on to them for a longer period of time. It was the logistical issues, and it, it, that's what always it boils down to. The logistical issues so often is what colored the um, experiences of the men. In so many cases, uh, it wasn't that they were being intentionally mistreated. It was logistics, water for, uh, for uh, the water supply, for instance. You know, that was a logistical issue that needed to be resolved. So um, same thing with, with leaving the camp. Let me ask before we do run out, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, what is there today? If, if uh, <clears throat> you're driving through southern Maryland, you, you've taken the John Wilkes Booth escape tour, and yeah. you want to see another Civil War site in the area, uh, what, what, what do we see today at the, the location that was once the Point Lookout prison camp? I would strongly recommend it. Um, it feels sometimes like you're going to the end of the earth. There's a state park there right now. But within the state park, there's a very nice little museum about the um, about the prisoner of war camp. Uh, the the um, the friends of the Point Lookout um, State Park have created um, a recreation of Fort Lincoln. You can see a recreation of the stockade fence. You can see recreations of what the tents look like. So a person can go there and get a pretty good sense of you know the location as well as some of the structures that were there at the time. It, it's really worth the trip. Well, that, that's something I look forward to doing sometime, always uh, looking for different places to see in the eastern part of the country. Uh, and it, it sounds like a very interesting one to, to visit. So uh, did anybody in, in your research come off as a particular good guy or bad guy in the story of Point Lookout? I would say Dr. Swam, William Swam, may have been a good guy. He was with the um, uh, um, sanitation, a uh, sanitary commission, mm-hmm. and early after the the war had or the prison had uh, started in November of 1863, um, the commission had asked for uh, for permission to inspect the camp, and Swam went, and he gave a very good impartial uh, overview of what was happening. He was, he was complimentary in some cases, but very, very negative in others. And as a result of his report, um, the men began to receive better clothing. Um, when they first got there before, you might have one blanket per three men. Mm. Uh, by the time he was finished and the report was, was filed, um, each man was getting his own blanket. But again, when it's, when it's 15 degrees and you've got one blanket on you, you don't have an overcoat and there's no wood in the fireplace, it gets cold. 
but he was he really did care um, about the you know these men and wanted to make sure that they were being treated fairly. Well, it's good to know there was was uh, you know, vestiges of humanity certainly to be found uh, in the U.S. Sanitary Commission and elsewhere. It is uh, right. overall a fascinating story. The uh, the story yeah. is detailed in the book. Howell Comes to Southern Maryland, the story of Point Lookout Prison at Hammond General Hospital. Its authors are Bradley M. Gottfried and Linda I. Gottfried. And Brad, uh, thank you for being our guest tonight and telling us about Point Lookout. Well, it's my, my pleasure, and thank you, Jerry, for the opportunity. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.